welcome to the Lessons for Living television program. My name is Bill Santos. Thank you so much for watching. According to an article that appeared in the Huffington Post written by Marcia Sirota, guilt seems to be an epidemic these days and it's plaguing the lives of so many people. She writes, I often hear of stories of how guilt is controlling someone's most important life choices. Strangely, guilt isn't even a natural emotion. The truth is, guilt is a learned reaction. A negative feeling about ourselves that's associated with something we're about to do or that we've done. And she goes on to say, guilt can be very crippling. Guilt leads us to do things that aren't good for us. There can be no freedom when we're driven by guilt. There's no possibility of living an authentic existence. She says we can give up the burden of guilt and begin to live a life of freedom and authenticity. We'll create more joy for ourselves and interestingly, when we're free of guilt. Now a competent psychiatrist can help a patient unravel the thoughts that lie dormant in the recesses of his or her mind. He can perhaps help put his finger on, on what event or what events in the life of a person has produced a sense of guilt. But the basic tenet of psychiatry, now, and I realize this is an oversimplified generalization, is that the important thing is discovering the events from your past that are making you feel guilty today. You see, the psychiatrist feels that once this is done, the guilt can then be dispelled. In other words, if a psychiatrist can show me, you know, that I hated my father when I was a small boy, then I can realize that that is the source of my feelings of hostility today. And, and I can put it all behind me and live a life that is tranquil and, and, and loving. Now, unfortunately, what sounds so easy and reasonable doesn't always work that way. Psychiatry, and let me, let me just repeat, this is a real healing ministry. We need psychiatrists today to get to the heart of the feelings and our senses. But, but this is only a step, and it's never the final one, particularly towards overcoming our guilt. For behind all of today's hustle and bustle, is a sense of loneliness that the best psychiatrist in the world can't overcome. Inside us is a feeling of guilt that involves more than a real or imagined grievance towards our fathers or mothers. In short, there exists within each of us a state of rebellion against God that colors all of our actions and all of our reactions. Now, usually we don't recognize it for what it is, but it's there. This feeling of guilt and of rebellion is one factor the communists capitalized on their brainwashing operations upon captured troops, for example, in Korea. You see, through the exhaustion of the prisoners, through fear and other devices, 
a person's memory became fragmented. He was unable to recall the correct time sequence of past activities in his life. And fragments of past experience were remembered dimly, but without relation to other memories of events. And the sense of guilt, which lay dormant in the back of his mind, was brought to the front. Now, this was how an American pilot could be induced to confess, you know, germ warfare, even though he had never participated in that sort of operation. His memory was confused. He knew he felt guilty about something, and his captor just kept hammering away at, for example, germ warfare, until he was sure that that was the thing he felt guilty about. You see, guilt is a reality to each one of us. It's an inescapable problem, or it is, until we discover the escape from it that has already been provided. And oddly enough, that escape from guilt, it comes in the form of a cross. Let's open our Bibles in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 53, beginning at verse 5. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. Like sheep we have all wandered away, each going its own way. But the Lord let fall on him all our crimes. He was oppressed and tormented, but didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb being brought to slaughter, like an ewe silent before her shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Due to an unjust ruling, he was taken away. And his fate, who will think about it? He was eliminated from the land of the living, struck dead because of my people's rebellion. His grave was among the wicked, his tomb with evildoers. Though he had done no violence and had spoken nothing false, but the Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. If his life is offered as a restitution, he will see his offspring he will enjoy long life. The Lord's plan will come to fruition through him and his deep anguish he will see light and he will be satisfied. Through his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and will bear their guilt. Therefore, I will give him a share with the great and he will divide the spoil with the strong in return for exposing his life to death and being numbered with rebels, though he carried the sin of many and pleaded on behalf of those who rebelled. I suppose that the first thing we must say about the cross is this. It defines our guilt. It shows us the depth of our sin. We've said all along that miracles are often quite ordinary in appearance to the non-believer. 
It is only through the eye of faith that God's intervention in history is shown. Even though many of us have misunderstood it, for a long time we've recognized that the cross is so connected with God's miracle of salvation that we've never really stopped to see things as they really were back then. Now, why was Christ crucified? Now, apart from the fulfillment of God's plan, why did the scribes and the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the authorities, both civil and religious, why did they feel he had to be done away with? Because prophets are, are always martyrs, perhaps because prophets are always ahead of their time, maybe. But wasn't the main reason that he defined the sin and the guilt of the individuals to such a degree that they couldn't let him live? Wasn't it the fact that in all that he said, in all that he was, he pointed out the contradiction between the pious utterances of the religious ceremonies and the actual feelings and emotions and daily actions of those who had always felt they were deeply religious. I guess in a word, Jesus laid bare the rebellion in the soul of each man who faced him. The Sermon on the Mount, often misinterpreted as a set of ethics, was a denunciation of sin. And there was no question of if the shoe fits, because the shoe fits everyone. The religious leaders had had kept the fasts. They had remained ceremonially pure. They had tithed, had, as a matter of fact, lived a much better life than any of us would profess today. And yet Jesus' teachings indicated the guilt that they had tried to push back into the dusty recesses of their minds. Looking with lust, becoming angered, desiring the places of honor, in love with the things of the world, having pride, and even though subtle and hidden, all these things were indicated by Jesus as the real sin of which each one was really guilty. You know, some have suggested it was jealousy on the part of the religious leaders that put Jesus on the cross. They feared that they would be supplanted in the religious hierarchy of the day. Now, this might have been a part of it, of course, but I would think that it was simply the fact that he knew them. He recognized the guilt that they thought they had hidden. And he showed it for what it really was, a rebellion against God. This was the thing Jesus told us about guilt. All of our rebellion is against God. We may think it's our fellow man whom we seek to destroy, you know, because they get in our way. But in actuality, what we're doing is striking out at God. 
in the coveting, the pride, and the lust, and all the rest of it, is a deep-seated rebellion against the Creator. It's a movement to usurp the sovereignty of God and replace it with the sovereignty of man. So they killed him because they couldn't face him, because he saw right through them. He offered healing. He promised forgiveness. He brought a new kingdom with its promise of new life, but all of these offers were rejected. Men crucified Jesus because they couldn't stand it. They might not have believed he was indeed the Son of God, but they recognized the truth of his accusations. And perhaps at the time of the crucifixion, they recognized the depths of their degradation. Perhaps as they saw that broken body lowered from the cross, it hit them with what they had really done. They had destroyed the only, of, the only power of goodness they had ever really known. The people had destroyed him, but, but they weren't free. In fact, the feeling of horror and revulsion probably set in immediately. The people who couldn't stand to look upon Christ had seen the depths of their sins, perhaps nowhere quite so dramatized as on the cross. For in that crucifixion, they realized the depths to which they would stoop to to try and hide the truth from themselves, that they were rejecting God's way and we're trying to rely on their own way. The cross then defined our guilt. It showed all guilt to be the guilt of man's rebellion against the holy God. Now, fortunately, that wasn't the end of the story. For the miracle of the cross is the miracle of salvation. The miracle of the cross doesn't make sense apart from the miracle of the resurrection, the conquering of death. Nor does it mean anything apart from the miracle of the incarnation, that is, God coming to earth as a man. To me, the whole gospel is summed up not in John 3.16 with all its beauty, nor in Romans or, or or Corinthians, or Galatians, for me, it is summed up in the cry of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them. This is the heart of our faith, that here at the cross, forgiveness is possible. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died to show us the cost of forgiveness. We know instinctively that a cheap forgiveness is no forgiveness at all. Our actions might be condoned, but that's, 
not the same as being forgiven. You can ignore an act, but that isn't forgiveness either. Only when you have suffered yourself are you able to forgive. If I have a million dollars, which I don't, but if I had a million dollars, and you steal a dime, and I say, forget it, it doesn't matter, I haven't really forgiven. I've just overlooked what you've done and have no feeling of being forgiven. In fact, you probably soon convince yourself that I owed you that dime and, and should have given you even more out of my abundance. But if you steal a rare dime from a coin collection, one that might be of supreme importance to me, and then you lose my dime, and if you see in my eyes the loss, and then if out of my tragedy I say to you, you're forgiven, you begin to feel a bit of the meaning of forgiveness. You see, we see in the cross God's cost in forgiveness, the depths to which he would go. Only when forgiveness costs is it really forgiveness. Then Jesus died, too, to, to show us that God makes the move. If our basic problem is one of guilt, which ultimately is shown to be the result of our rebellion against God, then salvation must be the creating of those conditions whereby man and God come together. But it is only the injured party that can forgive and restore a situation, isn't it? If I injure you in any way, I cannot restore the situation. I might buy you presents. I might smother you with flattery. You know, utterly debase myself in your presence, but the situation is not restored until you make the move. For if I actually succeed in buying my way back into the old relationship, it really isn't the old relationship at all. Something is forever missing. Only you can make the movement to set things right. So in our relationship with God, only God can restore things. Now, leaving aside for a moment the fact that God is eternal and God is absolute holiness, and we are never on his level, even if we were, you know, our crude bargaining, our, our promises to live a more righteous and ethical life, our, our confessions of, of previous misdeeds, they're of no avail in restoring things. Because God is the injured party. It is God who has been rejected, whose son we have crucified by our actions, even if we weren't at Calvary some 2,000 years ago. Only God can make the move. And in the cross, we see dramatic evidence that he has. He cut into human history to show the depths of his love for man.
and he offered up his son. And finally, Jesus died to redeem us. Redemption, a word currently associated only with trading stamps, is nevertheless a concept at the root of most of our troubles. We feel this nagging guilt. We understand at last our rebellion against God. And we feel that somehow we must make up or atone for what we have done. Usually we don't see how we can ever make up for it. So this is why we lock those guilt feelings so tightly in our minds well, that psychiatrist have to pry them loose. We're afraid that if they ever come out, we're lost because we can't make up for them. But on the cross, Jesus shows us that he has already made up for what we have done. He has redeemed us, which is to say he has ransomed us he has paid the price and brought us back. The penalty, the, the thing we think we somehow have to do to make up for our sins, it has already been paid. Jesus has paid it. He has redeemed us through his death on the cross. What is the miracle of the cross? Even though we don't deserve it, in Jesus Christ, who became man, that we might become free of our guilt, even though we were unlovable, he loved us. The good news of salvation is that God knows us. He knows the depths of our rebellion. He knows our pride. And still, he offers us his forgiveness. He knows us. And the miracle of the cross is that he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This, this is once and for all time the wonderful miracle of salvation. Let us pray. Our gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and the mercy and the goodness you just pour out on us as undeserving as we are. We thank you for what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And I pray that if there is anyone within the reach of my voice today, that has not accepted the gift of restoration, the gift of freedom, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, that they may do so right now. Thank you for the miracle of salvation. Bless each and every viewer, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we'd probably be wise to spend time every day reflecting on what Jesus Christ did on the cross for each and every one of us. And 
we have a resource for you here today, as we do at, at every program. Uh, it's, a, it's a small book. It's about 150 pages. It is called The Passion of Love. He did it for you. We'd love to send you this book that shares with you some insights into what really happened at the cross and what it cost God to be able to forgive us. It is a free resource. It's a free gift. There's no obligation whatsoever on your part. The, the book will arrive in the mail, postage paid. If you'd like to receive this gift, pay attention to the information we're about to give you. To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. That's the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. And we would be happy to send the offer out to you. That's Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. If you live in Canada, this offer will be sent out to you free and postage paid. For viewers living outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you wish, you can order this offer by calling our 1-800 number and speaking with one of our volunteers at 1-800-972-0337. 1-800-972-0337. Operators are standing by now. While on our website, you can leave a prayer request and if impressed to do so, donate to help keep this ministry on the air. Thank you for your support. Well, we've come to the end of another Lessons for Living television program. Thank you so much for watching. And uh, do us a favor and let your friends and family know when we're on so that they can tune in also. We'd love to have them with us every week. I want to remind you of our website, l4ltv.com. All of the previous programs are listed there. You can watch them from the website. You can source out some additional resources to help you better understand God's Word and, you know, dealing with some of the perplexing questions that we face, like what happens to us when we die and why do bad things happen to good people. I have special presentations on each one of those subjects and there's a handout that you can download that you can continue your study at home. There's a live appearances tab, which says where I'll be appearing live. Check that out. Find out where I'll be. Come out and visit me sometime. There's also a donate today tab where you can make a donation to the ministry. Uh, we are a charitable organization. And so every donation you make is eligible for a receipt that you can use for income tax purposes. We're on social media, Instagram, Santos underscore Bill. Every morning, a one minute devotional video goes out. Many folks tell me that's how they start their day. They start their day by watching that devotional one-minute video and just sort of set the course of the day on things of God. Like our Facebook page, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow and subscribe to our podcast. Before we go, I want to remind you of another very important aspect of our ministry, which is the humanitarian work that we do overseas. Uh, MissionNowCanada.com is the website that showcases those activities. And, and you can go on that website, you can find out where our next trip is going to be. You can also make a donation uh, 
to that particular aspect of our ministry to help with overseas humanitarian work. Well, we're rapidly running out of time and it's time for me to say goodbye. I hope we get a chance to do this again next time. God bless you. We'll see you then.